Hey everybody, it's Tommy. One of our mottos as creators of Weapon of Choice podcast when we launched in the fall of 2017 was, we're sure we want to do this. But what affirms us all the more is an awesome community of listeners who let us know Weapon of Choice actually matters. And we appreciate that. The fact that we feature powerful voices that are all about going deep and we're all about going deep, that combination is what makes us love doing what we do. And if you love having us as part of your consistent digital diet, we urge you to go to patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast and contribute any monthly dollar amount you can to ensure we keep this show going and growing. We have some cool thank yous like stickers and buttons and hopefully soon t-shirts. But really, what I'm asking you to do is joining with those who've already become sustaining members of this show. And we listen to y'all. Believe me, we're on social media. We get your messages. We get your emails. We book guests based on listener suggestions. I mean, we are really appreciative of the interaction we have. We want to continue to do that. And so we're asking you to give financial support to contribute to this podcast for people who can. And you can go on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast to give an monthly dollar amounts as, as little as one dollar or more a month and there's some cool prizes and you you know you become part of this weapon of choice community and we love you for that we love those who are listening who continue to listen and we're going to keep doing this work and finishing out season two and prepare and uh, for season three and keep having amazing amazing guests who are change makers of all generations of all backgrounds to um Really keep these conversations going and hope that hopefully as we grow, um, just as a show, I know that I and Andrew, we grow as people from doing this podcast and we hope that you're learning and growing up with us. So we really appreciate everything and let's get to this show. Thank you so much. Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back. Welcome back. How's everybody doing? This is Tommy. Um, we are here with another episode. It is still season two, and there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on with everybody, right? A lot going on in this world. Um, thanks for being patient with us. Uh, we took a little break in between episodes. Not intentionally, but, you know, life. Um, some new work um, for both of us, actually. Um you know, just, you know, had to, you know, had to recalibrate with our time and, but we had still been recording interviews, that's for sure. We've got a lot of episodes yet to release to finish out and round out season two. So we're excited for that. We're back. I mean, uh, you know, elections and all that was going on. So sometimes that kept us a little busy. Um, but I'm really excited to uh, get into this new episode uh, it was a really good one. I was really fortunate to have a wonderful conversation. One of the uh, many wonderful conversations we've had this summer. And uh, Olivia Gatwood, I want to tell you all a little bit about Olivia, who was on tour. And in her tour stop 
in Minneapolis. I caught up with Olivia, sat down with Olivia before one of her shows, and uh, we had a great conversation that we are happy to bring to your ears. Olivia Gatwood, such an amazing poet, originally from Albuquerque, now residing on the East Coast and still touring, doing her thing nationally, international, and it's her poetry that captivates audiences. All, it's her writing. She leads amazing writing workshops. She's done work as a Title IX compliant educator in sexual assault prevention and recovery. She's been featured on HBO and the Huff Post, MTV, VH1, BBC, you name it. Um, her poetry appears in all kinds of publications. She's written a book. We're going to talk a little bit about that. She's writing another book. You're going to hear all about what's going on with Olivia, her own words, as we sat down at the Cedar Cultural Center. Yes, an amazing venue in Minneapolis. And um, so I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. You can go get her book, New American Best Friend, at anywhere you get your books. And uh, yeah, we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to get into it. She's uh had a beautiful career so far and has uh, a beautiful story. And I uh, really appreciate the time that she put aside on the 10th of 10 days straight of touring to sit down with me and chop it up a little bit. Um, so let's get right into that. And you're going to hear a couple of her poems and you're going to love them and you're going to love this conversation. So we're glad you're here with us. Enjoy. My name is Olivia Gatwood. I'm a writer and poet and sometimes educator. In your life, how many ways have you answered the question from others or for yourself, what do you want to be? So for a long time, what I wanted to be, it's so weird how you look back when you're older, after you're, when you get older and you realize like everything in your life makes sense. Like for so long, I saw Harriet the Spy and for so long, I was like, I'm going to solve murder cases. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an investigator and I'm going to solve murder cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like was really intent on that. And I was really interested in that. I was really interested in crime reporting from a young age. I started a newspaper in my neighborhood and I would investigate like wow. little flukes in the neighborhood. Like um, <laughs> when people's cats would go missing, I would like write pieces about it and deliver the newspapers to people's doors and now I'm writing a book on true crime Uh, um, and a book about like the genre of crime writing uh and so it's just strange how that happens Um, but so that was for most of my life or a lot of my life I said that and then I spent a long time playing highly competitive soccer so I kind of thought that was going to be my life but not because I loved it but because I was good at it Mm. And because people wanted me to do it. Mm. So I used to kind of say that. But being a writer isn't an answer that you're taught you were allowed to give, you know. So it just kind of was not, it wasn't an answer I thought I could have. Yeah. So for a while, and if you are good at something like soccer, they don't have to push too hard to keep you in that lane. Right. That pressure is just. It's just there. And, you you know, you recognize it too. Absolutely. So it's not as scary. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned that you, you know part of one of your battles uh is you know you know taking all things that scare you in in your poetry in the writing and that's uh obviously like it's taking you to a place of growth yeah. to where you're on tour now yeah written a book writing another book in a not a totally different genre so you're writing true crime now and we'll get to the other book but yeah in your true crime are you 
trying to lift out some of the, you know, in comparison to perhaps other two crimes, some lift up some of those, you know, you know, the toxic masculinity within whatever crimes are happening. Are you yeah. thinking about that? Yeah. So the book is actually a book of poems about true crime. So uh-huh. I'm not writing true crime, uh-huh. but I guess in a way, but you're absolutely right. It's like 100, the book is 100% about true crime's fascination with the murder of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just like the fact that it exists in the world, but also how it makes me feel and like what, it, what that does to our psyche when we're always consuming media that revolves around violent deaths of women. Um, and some of the complexities within it, you know, true crime, like, also almost exclusively focuses on the death of young cis white women, mm-hmm. which is just, like, not accurate or a full picture. Mm-hmm. So true crime also, like, is deeply problematic, and it, like, illuminates a lot of the ways the world mourns very specific people. Yeah. And looks for very specific people. And searches people. for. All right. And searches for, yeah. Like that whole bodies like can go missing, you know, like a whole person and a whole identity can go missing and nobody says anything about it. Mm. But then another body goes missing and it makes head, it headlines every news station, you know? So the book is kind of about that and um, about the ways it's shown up in my life, the deaths of women in my life that are at the hands of men. And mm. um, yeah. Mm. So. And so it's a, Without even taking on that term, artist activist, that many of us don't need to, but your activism, how is it? How has your activism blossomed since you became uh, what you could call a well-known artist and public figure? So I think it. I think when you have to answer to people, it helps you really mm. like figure out a very concise um, and clear and true way to describe why you do what you do like it's Mm -hmm. with practice you know and I think like most writers I just always did it and so I didn't really know why but over the years as as I've talked to more people and performed for more people and done more interviews I've just had to answer Mm. for myself um you reflect in a more refined way absolutely yeah exactly Mm. it's much more refined and so that's been really helpful for me because it's a, almost like a thinking prompt. Like you're like, oh, why do I do what I do? Why yeah. do I care? And then you, you know, you have to say something. So. And you're you're on a, you're on a tour right now, so you're you're coming into cities and you're leaving cities. But uh, presumably, you connect with people, you connect with your audience, you connect with people you speak to while you're in that city. Um, and the art you do, um, in many ways where you're from and where you go builds community, even if it's just for the, the amount of energy in that room, the amount of thought going on and the, the ways people receive your words, that's happening. But how do you see art? Um, you know, what excites you about art being a community builder? I, you know, I, I got my start in a community of artists. Poetry is very community oriented in that, you know, you start doing poetry by going to open mics. Like you can't, it's not as private, I think, as many art forms are. Um, you know, unless you're just writing privately Mm. in your journal. But when you're doing performance, you're going into bars and you're reading your work for a bunch of people and then you're hanging out with those people. So um, I think that it, I I always feel excited for especially teenagers because I know that being interested in poetry isn't like necessarily cool. Mm. Um, it's, It's more common now, but 
I, like I think now that more teenagers have access to it. But before, like at my school, it was like five kids, you know, and finding community was so validating to be like, oh, there's other kids that like feel like this is magic mm-hmm. like I do. Yeah, I think I definitely think more of all the entire population of this world should be poets. But are you seeing like the younger generations? It's actually more visible that people are not just getting into poetry, but you know, writing and performing poetry. Um, and then going outside these bars and these spoke, these uh, open mic communities, are you seeing that reach and perhaps the social media? Are you seeing it burgeoning in a way that makes you hopeful? I think so. You know, I think it all it's all very complex. It's weird when poetry becomes like it's interesting to me because I go to high schools now and with like the access mm-hmm. to poems on the Internet, like poems on YouTube, especially po- teenagers have favorite poems like we did favorite songs, you know, they have favorite poets, like we did favorite art, like favorite rock stars or favorite rappers. And like, Mm. they have like, they know the words and um, they listen to them on Spotify. And they like, you know, like I teenagers are all the time like, oh, I listen to your poems when I get ready in the morning. Um, And that's really amazing. And also is very strange. And I said, I think created a, a kind of weird culture around poetry. And that now there can be a desire to be a poet because you have a desire to, like, get internet famous, which is very weird. And that's a weird motivation to have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't the case at all when I was growing up. So that's been introduced into the genre of poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are definitely, like, a certain kind of poem that do really well on Instagram. And it's like, okay, should I write that kind of poem so that I can get this many followers? Or should I stay true to what I believe is good? Like, you know, and that's, I think that that's maybe, like, a downside to it. But it's also just a part of hmm. an part of an art form becoming an industry. Yeah. And I think poetry went from in a weird way, an art form to an industry with Mm. the amount of colleges that are demanding it, like the possibility for financial success in poetry, uh, the possibility for like internet viralness through poetry. But at the same time, I think it's really amazing. And Mm. I really am sometimes envious of teenagers that are, because I was lucky if I could find a poem on YouTube that was like filmed with like a shaky camcorder, mm-hmm. you know, or like a cell phone video. Yeah, yeah. And now you've got like $20,000 camera. Literally, yeah. Button poetry. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, now you've got whole, like so much money behind everything it. Everything produced, yeah. Is there a Nashville, for, is there a Nashville of, of poetry? It might poetry? be Minneapolis, honestly. It might be? It might be Minneapolis. I mean, it's the, f- it's, it's in terms of industry. Yeah. It's the, home of button poetry. Mm-hmm. Many incredible poets live here. The Loft Literary Center is here. Um, so it might be Minneapolis, honestly. Uh, well, that's, that's cool. <laughs> um, so, you know, your poems can get personal. Um, some of them are derived from pain, some from beauty, some from, you know, from pride and what have you. But um, do you have any boundaries or walls when you're creating because you're sharing so much of you with the world? Do you ever deflect any pain that you feel? I've not really ever talked about this, but I will for you. Um, Yeah, I don't, I struggle really intensely with depression and I didn't really grow up in a house that talked about it. I grew up in a really progressive household. I grew up with 
parents that are really accepting and open, but for some reason, mental health just wasn't really something that was very present. Um, and so I've always, I think I've always had it, honestly. Um, but I just started to name it and I don't write about it and I don't talk about it on stage and I don't even post on the internet about it because I get, I guess, and this isn't to like shade any poets that do, but like, I don't want to be a spokesperson for it. I just want it to go away. Um, and people can tell me that that's not healthy, but it's true. I know very well at this point that the things I write and put out into the world are things I have to answer to. They're the hill I have to die on. And I don't want to die on that hill. You know, I don't want to like, um, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to write up. I don't have, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it to myself. You know, like I just don't, I just want to, I just want to get help and I want it to go. I want it to subside. I don't want to get, I don't want a YouTube video about it, you know? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I trust that people do have the resources to find the help they need. And I don't think I need to be there for it. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like a boundary like that is not an unhealthy one. Cause you're clearly yeah. like, that's a that's a separate that's a very personal battle mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm also a believer if you don't have to put all of your whole self into your art even yeah i, I always believe you have to bring your true self to something but not always yeah. your whole self absolutely i agree and so that's yeah. a that's a beautiful healthy boundary that um i hope people can uh, understand that um and another thing that makes your work uh you and your work so powerful and transcendent is its tenderness Thank so you, you know is that combination of vulnerability and strength, you know, that's that's what I see is it a combination of vulnerability and strength that you don't always get. How important is that combination? I think it's necessary, you know, um, for a lot of my poetry career at first, I think I wrote a lot at arm's length. So I wrote a lot of like about issues that presumably adjacently affected me, but I didn't write about the direct impact they had on me. Um, and it wasn't until I wrote a book that I started to write a lot more autobiographical material and really started to talk about myself and my feelings and not just about these other things in the world. And it's been a really important process for me. I think it's been really important for my readers. Mm. Um, it has like made me confront a lot of stories from my life and understand why they matter. And I think vulnerability is just like, I think it's literally the exact counteracting emotion or characteristic to masculinity in that, not that masculine people can't be vulnerable, but that I think what makes masculinity toxic is that it's not vulnerable or that it often isn't. Um, and when masculine people can be vulnerable or when anyone can be vulnerable, I think immediately like, a room that room is a better place to exist in or mm. that world is a better place to exist in mm. and so i i want to contribute to that by acknowledging that like i have emotions and that i can feel in pain and that um i'm not a perfect person and i'm not always mm. angry i'm not always feeling rage like sometimes i just feel 
open or raw or um, soft. And yeah, I think that's really vital. Was there a moment when you kind of transitioned, when you kind of crossed that line of more melding the issues out there versus in here? When you when you crossed that line of like making it a little more personal to the degree of vulnerability, um, do you remember like a moment where you like had to unlock or break down emotional or psychological barriers to you know get to that place artistically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I wrote my first book, um, I really had to like think hard about the book I want, wanted to write. I didn't really expect to. I had submitted a few poems to the Button Poetry Chapbook Contest and got selected. And mm -hmm. then I was like, okay, wow, now I have to write a book. Mm -hmm. um, and it shouldn't be a book of just a bunch of my like quote unquote slam poems, you know. I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to have a like really clear narrative arc. And then I had to think about what story I wanted to tell uh, and I think then it was a matter of like going into my memory and, and seeing what kind of stands out and what, what memories I have that I can't forget, like little tiny moments from my life that will not go away, not necessarily because they're painful, mm -hmm. but just, they just won't. Those are the stories you tell at parties. Like those are the anecdotes like you have in car rides. And those were the things I wanted to bring up moments from my teenagehood and my adolescence, funny stories, Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. And so I think that that was like a really crucial moment for me to start to really have to use the pronoun I, you know, and not just this thing, not just this idea. Is, every, is almost everything you experience a poem? I mean, like, is every day you're living a rough draft because... <laughs> Maybe. I think I shut down. I shut it out sometimes, you know. Um, it always surprises me what ends up being a poem. I'm trying to think of like... Do dreams ever become poems? I have a, Yeah, I have some poems about dreams for sure. Mm. I dream really vividly. Um, but yeah, I guess in a way, like the, now, I'm, now that I'm, especially now that I'm writing, I'm working on a book that's so like specifically themed. Mm. Everything I see is like, <laughs> like I was talking to someone the other day and I was like thinking we were talking about um, words that like combine, like one word that when split is two words. So like avenue is the word is like a venue. Um, and then like therapist is like the rapist, which is strange. Um, and it doesn't mean anything. But like we were talking about the word manslaughter, which is man's laughter. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I should just write a poem about that. So now that I'm fresh, this is fresh in my brain, especially true crime mm -hmm. and like homicide. <laughs> mm -hmm. Everything I see every day, I think about writing about. Mm -hmm. I want to like go down a rabbit hole of dreams because you say mm -hmm. you, you say you dream vividly and like lucid, vivid dreams. I'm like right there. Yeah. Do you, you know, and I have beautiful ones but also have very dark ones but i, I my, myself as a writer as a creator wake up <laughs> as terrifying as they can be I, I wake up appreciating the fact that my imagination mm. exists mm -hmm. and if it has to go they're great but it reminds me that i have an imagination yeah do you like really appreciate the wackiness of them the vivid ones if they ever go there yeah 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 i think i do there was a time where i was lucid dreaming like every night for Ooh. several months and it was exhausting that's a lot and i was like maybe I need to get like hypnosis or something to like get out of this because I was waking up feeling like I didn't get any sleep because mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I felt present all night. 
Mm-hmm. It was like, no, I didn't go to sleep. I was too busy, like trying to get out of that house that I was in all night, you know, like, and you'd wake up exhausted mm-hmm. or like lucid dream or like dreaming about social scenarios. And you wake up like anxious that that happened. Mm-hmm. But I think I would be sad if I didn't have vivid dreams. It's just become such a big part of my identity. It's like a different world you live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are your parents still around? Yeah, they are. And they, they're progressive, but uh, how do they receive your more revolutionary poems, so to speak? They're really supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, they're like, that's not how it happened. But it's like, that's how it happened to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're pretty cool people. Mm. So yeah, talk about pressures you've gotten as you've advanced your career. Have there been setbacks or... Uh, or even pushback, and even if you want to speak to the, you know, I have friends who's told me stories of like slam poetry worlds, where it's like this was years ago, but it's it's you know their conversations and stories that they told me mirror what's going on with the Me Too movement and all that. Mm. And you're you're get, you're getting more success. You're ending up in more venues and dealing with more people from city to city. Sure. Like have there been have there been frustrations or setbacks or even pushback? Yeah, it could be people you're close to about your work. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, totally. I mean, without naming names, of course. Yeah, I've been doxxed, you know, um, by men's rights activists. Been had my in my one of my poems got posted on one of their sites, and their whole goal is to get you to shut down your social media. So you start getting hundreds of messages on every platform of people telling you they're going to kill you, they're going to rape you, to kill yourself, they're going to kill your family. Um, So I was blocking Mm. like hundreds of people a day and Mm. they got my credit card information. And um, so that happened, you know, in a more like social aspect. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was in a group, um, in a duet. It was... um, you know, I don't want to name names or really go into that, but mm-hmm. we were two white women touring, um, teaching workshops on consent, teaching about feminism. Um, and, you know, it got a lot of pushback, um, both because of very personal interactions folks had had, but also this sheer concept of two white women kind of in a way, like really capitalizing. We were getting a lot of shows. So we were kind of like, I don't want to use the word dominating, but like we were definitely like doing a lot of shows, um, doing very well. And it was it is ridiculous. And like to say that that did not have to do with our whiteness because it did. Um, Colleges responded really well to that. It wasn't threatening to them, you know. Mm. And there was a lot of like behind the scenes work in terms of like unpacking that. Um, And ultimately, like. I made the decision to cut it. And to to leave it because I knew like at my core that 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 wasn't something I could cater to, you know, Hmm. Um, obviously, individually, I'm still a white poet, but like that there's power in numbers and that if just white women are coming into these schools and um, talking about feminism and our and our branding it, I think that it I think it's catering to something that is harmful. And I had to really grapple with that no matter how much I believed in the work we were doing. Yeah. I mean, there's a momentum. It takes courage to get out of that. Yeah. Um, 
And there was a lot of pushback. You know, it's not like I just came to that revel- re- revelation by myself. It's not like I just was like, yeah. you know, I'd been thinking about it, but it wasn't something I was actively going to do. It's it was hard to do it. It was we were making a lot of money, you know, mm. like we were getting a lot of attention and it was hard to make that decision. Mm. Um, but when there was such extreme pushback from the community, it became really clear. It was like, oh, this is hurting people. This is making people mad. And like this is maybe taking jobs away from poets of color that are trying to do the same thing. Um, and you could feel that impact of two individuals versus, you know, solo. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, now I, I don't perform in colleges really. So mm-hmm. I'm not like marketing myself as a spokesperson necessarily, or as an educator that, and also colleges usually budget for one poet a year, you know, um, huh. Being an art, an individual artist, like you're not, you're definitely taking up space in a way, of course, but um, you're not necessarily like stomping on on a ground that can only be stomped on once by one person. And colleges really will budget, mm. especially with Title IX, which is what we were doing. They're mm. like, we have budget for this one educator. So we were, so it was really hard, and it was a hard decision to make, and it was a really intense blow up. And it was like an intense fallout. And it, it definitely like shook me, you know? It made me lay stagnant for a year. Like I didn't really perform. And um, it really like had me thinking a lot about my role as an artist and why I was like complicit in that in the first place, what that meant, what I could do better, how I could learn. But like, it really taught me so much. It taught me an incredible amount and about what what we can do with our with our space that mm. we take up. What helped you or motivated to, to you to get out of that stagnation to like say, look, I still have much more pouring out. Yeah. In terms of my writing to give, and here we go. Let's you know you rose back up and got back on the horse in a different way. But what what made you get back up after a year? Um. I, well, I had to write my book. I'd gotten the book deal already, and. I had a deadline to meet. Mm -hmm. Um, So it naturally, I was already thinking about like, what are, what are my, what, like, what is my role as an artist in the world and what story do I want to tell? And so the book was like a blessing in that way. It felt like a burden at the time. I was like, I'm like, I'm really just trying to like, I was like, I'm trying to be a waitress and like never do this again, you know? But I had to write this book. Um, Mm. So I just did what I know best and I told my own story. And it mm. was like, all I can do is do that, is just mm. talk about where I come from and who I am. And then it garnered this whole new fan base, which was interesting. A book is so beautiful in that way. Like mm. suddenly it was like this, my readership started to change and the people reaching out to me started to change. And I was like, oh, wow. Um, and it became really clear to me like why I'm here and what I am supposed to be doing and and how I can do better. And I'm always learning and all, and I'm always thinking about that fallout. Like it's present in my mind all the time with everything I post on the internet, everything I say, everything I do. And and I mean that in a good way. Yeah. You feel it's good. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, this is, this is something that happened and I'm not just like trying to avoid it. I'm also, I'm trying to actively like not do that. You know, I'm trying to actively confront the parts of me that were complicit in that. 
Hmm. So well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Is there anything you haven't written or performed yet that you've been itching to? Uh, yes. Um, I, well, I guess there's some pieces in my new book that I'm excited to perform. There's a couple poems I'm, I'm wanting to write that I have kind of written as prompts in my notes, but mm. yeah. So it's, it's, it's coming soon. Like, so you think on the tour, there'll be some newer material. I'm reading new work. Yeah. Yeah. No disrespect to the previous cities. No, <laughs> I'm re I'm reading new, new work. Yeah. Is that, is that fun? Um, you know, cause if you're, if you're writing, you're writing this true crime book, there's poetry there. Mm -hmm. Um, do you, do you make like really, um, defined decisions to say, um, I don't want to put this out till January or I'm just going to, you know, cause some artists don't like to try new stuff on yeah. stage. Yeah, no, I definitely wait. And I also like a set list is a very specific thing. So like there's a lot of poems I want to read, but they don't make sense mm -hmm. in the narrative of the show. And I'm really big on that, mm -hmm. on like taking people on through a kind of like journey or whatever. Um, so like there's a lot of poems I want to read. It's not that I'm holding back because they're not ready, but it's more because they don't make sense with it. Mm -hmm. But how how do you sharpen your weapon that is poetry? Read more than you write. Um, listen more than you speak. Be hyper aware of language all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the tools. Reading yeah. and listening, the yeah. heavy, heavy, heavy tools, huh? Yeah. And uh, how do you... How do you love the beauty in the world in spite of its ugliness? Love the beauty of the world in spite of its ugliness. Um, that's sometimes hard for me. <laughs> I'm kind of a pessimist, I guess. Uh, but I think I like watch. I think I like watching people love each other. I'm an intense empath, mm. and I like watching people be a good friend. I like watching people be in love and be in relationships. I like listening to podcasts, honestly. Um, they remind me that like people are interested in other people. Mm -hmm. There's so many people in the world that just talk, you know, they just only want to talk about themselves. And I've been that person, but like, it really is so common. And I feel like it's really beautiful to me when I meet people that aren't like that. Hmm. that like really want to know and are curious and want to learn. Um, and I also really love my potted plants. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That gives you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Breathing is important too. Yeah. <laughs> breathing good air. Yeah. And so you, 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 what ways do you, how do you find, how do you balance cynicism and hope? Uh, well, that's difficult for me on a lot of days. Um, I think I'm always, I'm always trying to figure that out. I don't think I have an answer for it. I don't, mm. I don't know how to balance it. Some days I feel good and hopeful and some days I don't. And I don't really know how to balance it yet. And you like witnessing people enjoy themselves, have conversations or hearing them if it's a podcast. Do you like witnessing other people in love? Yeah, I like witnessing people be loving to each other. And I like when people are affectionate. I like when people dance with each other. Um, I like when, like watching people help each other. Hmm. I really like watching videos 
of people like <laughs> rescuing dogs. <laughs> like I just like it makes me feel like there are really like so many selfless acts that happen all the time. There, there are people whose whole whose entire careers are devoted to being selfless. Mm-hmm. And I think I kind of like get off on that because my job, like while it, I do think I'm doing good work is also about me. Like my brand is myself. And sometimes I'm like, am I a narcissist for that? Like, am I selfish? Like, so when I see that there are people who like, literally they just work in a humane center. That's all they do is like mm-hmm. bring dogs back to life. Like that's like, that's in, that's mind blowing to me, you know? Yeah. Um, and you, so you talk about how like the internet can be an ugly beast yeah. with, uh, it doesn't even have to be men's right acts. It's just your average man saying some really sure. terrible shit, right? Absolutely. Um, and obviously a lot of your poetry, uh, it, it really inspires a whole lot of people, men, women, and, and everything under the, everyone under the sun to, you know, hopefully find something within themselves to think about it, If not, even if not speaking out about it, because the toxic masculinity going around, I mean, there's many, 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 many times I've been a card carrying member. Um, do you, how do you appreciate, and it's typically it's just straight men, right? Mm-hmm. How do you appreciate them in spite, in spite, or us, I'll say, in spite of our toxic and violent masculinity? Um, so I'm multitasking. Um, well, I think like, and this isn't to ask, like, say something good about men. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. The whole, like, how do you balance beauty sure. and ugliness, you know? You know, I think the, like, simple answer is that, like, I just don't, I don't trust men. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, I like, I grew up with, like, an incredible father. And so from a very young age, like, I loved a man. Um, and he's, like, genuinely one of the best people I know he listens and he's patient and he's kind and he's vulnerable and he's good to women and he believes in women as people and he's never been crude or like, he's just like an incredible man. Um, There are times where I think my mom has more misogyny than my dad does. So that's actually really interesting. Mm. Um, And I grew up loving a lot of boys. And uh, I think that like the way to balance hope is, is, not to set the bar low, but like mm-hmm. to be really, I'm feel really observant and like attuned to men living into their vulnerability. I feel really aware of it when I see it. And I love like when men are friends with each other because they love each other and not because they're bonding over like the objectification of other women, of women or, um, I love when I love, I love witnessing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. write a poem for the women on Long Island who smoke cigarettes in their SUVs with the windows rolled up before walking into yoga, who hack and curse in Downward Dog, and Deborah from the next block over who has strong opinions about Christmas lights after New Year's says that her body isn't what it used to be, but neither is the economy or the bagels at Rickman's Deli, so who really cares? And during Shavasana, she brings up the rabbi's daughter who got an abortion last spring, and Candy in the corner calls Deborah hateful, and the class 
takes a sharp inhale through the nose, then out through the mouth, and after class, after Candy rushes home to check the lasagna, Deborah lights up a smoke and calls her friend Tammy. So then the girl calls me hateful. Hateful, can you believe it? What a word, some kind of dictionary bitch over here. So you know what I says? I says, you don't know the first thing about hateful. Wanna know what's hateful? Menopause. And it doesn't really matter if Deborah actually said that to Candy, which she didn't, because Tammy is so caught up that Candy called Deborah hateful, which she did, that next week, when Tammy runs into Candy while shopping in Rockville Center, and Candy asks Tammy how she's doing, Tammy will adjust the purse strap on her shoulder and say, we all have a little coal in our stocking, Candy. And Candy will shuffle away, certain that Tammy knows something about her marriage that she shouldn't, and she doesn't. She just loves Deborah, who has a lot of opinions. And had Candy given her the chance to finish her sentence, Deborah would have talked about the reproductive rights march she went to in the 60s and the counterproductive sex-shaming methods of organized religion. I want to write a poem for the women on Long Island whose words stretch and curl like bubblegum around the forefinger, who ask if I have a boyfriend, and before I answer, say, don't do it. Don't ever do it. You know my friend Linda, she's a lesbian, like a real lesbian, and whenever I go over there, but she lives on Corona over by Merrick by the laundromat, you know what I'm talking about? Whenever I go over there and see her and her wife, what's her name? I can never remember the girl's name. Anyway, whenever I I go over there. I says, you know what I need? I says, a girlfriend, that's what I need. The women on Long Island let their teenage daughters throw parties in the basement while they watch the home network upstairs and keep a bat by the couch in case anyone gets roofied, even if it's their own son who did the drugging. The women on Long Island won't put it past any man to be guilty, even their kin, who after all have their husbands' hands and blood. And last week, when a girl was murdered while jogging in Queens, the women on Long Island were unstartled and furious. They did not call to warn their daughters. They called their sons, sat them at the kitchen table, and said, if you ever, and I mean ever so much as make a woman feel uncomfortable, I will take you to the deli and put your hand in the meat slicer. You think I won't? You hear me? I will make a hero out of you with mayonnaise and tomatoes and dill and onions. I want to write a poem for the women on Long Island who, when I show them the knife I carry in my purse, tell me it's not big enough, who are waitresses and realtors and massage therapists and social workers and housewives and tell me they wish they would have been artists, but life comes fast, you know? One minute you're taking typing classes for your new secretary job in the World Trade Center and the next it's almost over, life I mean, but I kicked and screamed my way through it and so will you. I can tell by the way you walk one more thing when they call you a bitch say thank you thank you very much I ask personal questions That's okay. <laughs> like, um, mainly because like we have fans right as or you have fans mm-hmm. anyone with a name has fans and they might see you as like got your shit together right sure. which you do but you know it's i really appreciate it. in a way <laughs> i really I, I ask personal questions so like you know i think it's better for the whole world to understand that we're all what we have what we are you know when do you you can answer them in either order or you can answer one yeah. or none when do you feel most alone in the world and when do you feel most connected in the world i feel most alone in the world um wow Ooh. okay i'm trying to i'm trying to think of like i think i feel most alone when sometimes it's like the middle of the day 
and I work from home and I've like gotten everything done I needed to early and it's the middle of the day and I like have nothing to do and I know that that sounds like so privileged to say and it is but I think okay no I take that back I take that back the most alone I feel in the world is when I go to shows by myself and I perform for a bunch of people and then I leave and get back to a hotel room and it's a deeply lonely feeling. And that is also a very privileged place to be alone. But, but you walked away from all that energy. Exactly. There's a lot of people talking to you, loving on you, who feel like they know you, but they don't. And you're just in a room. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why this tour, I brought a lot of people with me. Mm -hmm. Because that loneliness was really fucking with me. Yeah. It was hard and it was painful. And it was like everyone everyone has you and nobody has you. Mm -hmm. Everyone sees you and nobody sees you. Shout out your touring mates real quick. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Shout them out. <laughs> I, Maria Jose is our merch girl. She's also my roommate and she's been really integral on this tour. Joaquina Mertz is the opening support. Um, and Joaquina just, had that beautiful voice in rehearsal yes, yeah. that you were hearing over soundcheck earlier. Yeah. Um, Sierra DeMolder is here tonight and she'll be with us for a couple more dates. Mm. So, yeah. All right. Bless y'all. Bless us. Uh, oh, all the questions have been open-ending, obviously, but I just want to reiterate here when I ask this, completely open-ended. What are you tired of hearing? I'm tired of hearing... Um, I am tired of hearing... I'm tired of hearing people list me as their favorite poet in a list full of white poets. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of people. Yeah, I'm tired of that. I think mm. it's really it's it's a really complicated feeling to like be at odds with your fan base. Mm -hmm. um, and to be like, damn, you really only listen to white people. <laughs> mm. Real, like really, truly you do. Hmm. Um, yeah, mm. I hear it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> what do you want listeners to know? <laughs> I want listeners to know that I am not the end all be all of a voice against misogyny. And I'm not the best poet in the world. I'm not the only person you can relate to. Um, and that you know alongside me there's an incredible community of of poets of color of black women writers um who are fucking killing it you know and like just because someone doesn't look like you doesn't mean like they won't move you mm -hmm. uh yeah mm -hmm. when is this work most fun Oh, it's most fun when I start a poem and everyone gets excited because that's their poem they love. Oh, like uh, like yeah. like you're at a concert. Yeah, and like <laughs> I love that. Just a it's, couple of notes. It really on the never guitar. gets old. Yeah, it never oh, gets old. That's fun because yeah. you're just like oh. I'm like wow, people know the words. You ever it's feel so like cool. so you, you you played soccer? Do you ever feel like you're playing? Yes, yeah. I think that's why I started doing spoken match? word because it was competitive. <laughs> I'm a competitive oh, yeah. person, especially I'm, with slam, right? Yeah, I'm very competitive. It's uh, not a quality of mine, but. Hmm. Um, yeah. What art are you currently taking in 
that's recharging you, that's giving you life? Um, so I am reading um, a lot of books. I'm, I'm reading a lot of books that are reminiscent of true crime. Mm. Um, so like there's a book of essays called Dead Girls that's been really amazing. I'm also watching sh TV shows that are really helpful, like Sharp Objects. Yeah, I'm I just finished that. I, I haven't watched the last episode. So I know there's something crazy happening, but I've, I've been on the road. I haven't been able to watch it. Um, I listen to My Favorite Murder, the podcast, a lot. Mm. Um, I loved um, Carmen Maria Machado's book of short stories, Her Body and Other Parties. I've just been reading a lot of like books and watching a lot of television about murdered women. <laughs> And it's been, I don't know, recharging is the word, but it's been filling me with something. Mm -hmm. A lot to think about. Obviously. A lot to think about. Yeah. Yeah. What was the first poem you ever performed and where? Where was it? Um, the first poem I ever performed was a poem about being <laughs> harassed by boys. Mm -hmm. I wrote it when I was 16 and I performed it for my entire high school. Yeah. Yes. And yes. Um, I really liked making people, uh, people got really like, an, like a lot of the boys got really defensive and angry uh, and of course. Um, were making noise in the audience. And I liked it. I, I dug it. Did you connect with any girls at the school that you maybe had no relationship with and that actually like a real solid bond was made from? Totally. Absolutely. Them hearing yeah. someone speak their truth. Yeah. 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 And a lot of my friends like turned to me to articulate things that they were feeling, you know, um, they would want me to read them poems because it was like, tell us what we already feel, but just say it in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. What did, how do you handle nerves? Is there ever like yeah, I used to get panic? Totally. I get really bad stage fright when I know that there's competition at stake because I hate losing and I hate rejection. So like sl poetry slam gives me incredible anxiety. I'm so glad I don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Performing for teenagers gives me a lot of anxiety because teenagers are not shy about you disappointing them or not being interested in you. Um, <laughs> performing at like timed events, like I did a TED talk last year mm. and it was like tr God. truly the most nerve wracking experience because the stakes were so high. You know, you have this amount of time and you like have this little red dot that you can stand in and don't mess up and you don't say um and you don't say like, you have everything memorized. So, wow. Yeah. What's your what's your goal on stage? To make people laugh. Yeah. You like being goofy? Yeah, I'm really I try to be really funny between my poems. I don't want to say I'm funny, but I try to be funny. Sure. Because I I know my poems aren't always funny. Um and I believe in humor. I like believe in laughing at myself. So, hmm. what do you hope to walk away? I mean, and obviously, like you want your audiences to walk away with things. What What are you hoping to get from your audiences? Um, I hope my audience. What do I hope to walk away with my from my audiences? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I just I hope. I feel really moved when people listen. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, yeah, I guess like when people listen and they come up to the merch table after and yeah, and they just, I, I guess that's all I could ask for. Yeah. Those, people listen. All the social media and stuff washes away when you even have two people standing in front of you telling, yeah. telling you how much 
And then, you know, you're so skilled at what you do. Obviously, it comes from life experience, growth, education, perhaps. Is there also some immense universal unknown that drives and inspires you to create? Universal unknown that drives. It's like, you know, do you embrace mystery and mystique? Yeah. And in, in channeling that in your art? Yeah, I think so. I grew up in a really science-based household with, like, no faith. Mm. Um, but I love astrology. Mm. Um, I love space. <laughs> and like I said, I'm usually writing from a place of question. So I guess everything is a mystery until I write about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. And now I'm writing about missing women, and that might be the greatest mystery. So... Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, so can you tell people the name of your current book and uh, where they can find it other than other than Amazon? Yeah, my current book is New American Best Friend. You can find it at buttonpoetry.com. You can find it in a lot of in local indie bookstores. Mm -hmm. um, you can find it hopefully at a used bookstore one day or some of my yeah. shows. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, social media, you got that? It's just at Olivia Gatwood on everything. Olivia Gatwood, thank you so much for really carving out some time on a day of a show, 10 shows in a row. Of course. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Blessings. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Olivia Gatwood. What a pleasure and privilege, honor it was to talk with you. Everybody go get Olivia's work, read her books, order them up, share them with your friends. Order her next book. Order the book after that. Check her out. She's doing great things and she uh, she uh, creates and celebrates and performs with other amazing performers. That's what that's one thing I really love is she doing the, the way she likes to uh, when she's on the road, um, be on stage and share the stage with a lot of amazing performers. So you check it, you, you look into Olivia Gatwood, you're gonna be blessed in, in ways. Um, that you can't even expect. So thank you, everybody, for listening, hanging out with us for yet another episode. We want to keep bringing you all this goodness. We want to keep inspiring everybody. You know, we always want to know what art are you currently taking in that inspires you. Uh, let us know. You can email us at weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com, weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at weaponofchoicepodcast, Facebook at weaponofchoicepodcast, Twitter at Weapon Choice Pod. We want to hear from you. Um, what gives you the energy? What art are you taking in that's giving you that energy to keep going, keep fighting, keep loving? You know, I know that, you know, as a person who primarily likes to write for film, the things that inspire me to write the most are, you know, music, singers, other art forms. We know we got to, we were blessed the other night here in Minneapolis to listen to Mike and property and some other amazing artists and i told prop man i was like it's your fucking angelic beautiful voice in this in the music you create that actually inspires me to go home and write some scenes for a film that has nothing to do with music or singing like that's the type of inspiration that i love to spread where we can go be encouraged through some art we take in to love someone more to listen to someone more you know, what are we learning about ourselves as we're making this podcast and as we're listening to this podcast? All of you out there, we'd love to hear from you. L.A. Buckner, killer on the drums here in Minneapolis. He was like, I'm inspired to go drum. He's telling me I'm inspired to go play the drums 
by cooking. Cooking inspires me to make music. It's beautiful. I love that shit. I love it. Anyway, stay tuned, y'all. We got a lot more to bring you in season two. More episodes. Um, We're going to keep doing this because we know we want to do this. <laughs> and we know you're along for the ride with us. So please share us on the social media and tell more people about the show that you are supporting. And we appreciate all your support. So I'll leave it there. Y'all take it easy. But before you do that, here's another poem from Olivia Gatwood. Take it in, y'all. Alternate universe in which I am unfazed by the men who do not love me. When the businessman shoulder checks me in the airport, I do not apologize. Instead, I write him an elegy on the back of a receipt and tuck it in his hand as I pass through the first class cabin. Like a bee, he will die after stinging me. I am 24 and have never cried. Once, a boy told me he doesn't believe in labels, so I embroidered the word chauvinist on the back of his favorite coat. A boy said he liked my hair the other way, so I shaved my head instead of my pussy. While the boy isn't calling back, I learn carpentry, build a desk, write a book at the desk. The boy says he prefers blondes, and I steam clean his clothes with bleach. The boy says I am not marriage material, and I put gravel in his pepper grinder. The boy says period sex is disgusting and I slaughter a goat in his living room. The boy doesn't ask if he can choke me, so I pretend to die while he's doing it. My mother says this is not the meaning of unfazed. When the boy says I curse too much to be pretty and I tattoo cunt on my inner lip, my mother calls this being very phased. <laughs> but left over from the other universe are hours and hours of waiting for him to kiss me and here they are just hours. Here they are a bike ride across Long Island in June. Here they are a novel read in one sitting. Here they are arguments about God or a full night's sleep. Here I hand an hour to the woman crying outside of the bar. I leave one on my best friend's front porch. Send my mother two in the mail. I do not slice his tires. I do not burn the photos. I do not write the letter. I do not beg. I do not ask for forgiveness. I do not hold my breath while he finishes. The man tells me he does not love me, and he does not love me. The man tells me who he is, and I listen. I have so much beautiful time.